people are scared of their security, their approval, and control. So again, security, approval, and control. Yeah. So what do those actually mean is the next question. So security... Hi, my love. Hi, honey. This was such a good episode. Feel good episode. Yeah. Jeff did such a great job sharing things that relate to all human beings. Everyone needs to listen to this and share it. We talked about, well, first of all, he's an executive coach and he's worked with hundreds and I believe thousands of clients. These are leaders, CEOs, investors, managers, human beings. And he has great pattern recognition because he's just worked with so many folks, right? And seen a lot of it. And he told me about what are the biggest struggles that come up and boils it down to two things, fear and trust. And then we break those down as well as how to cope and deal with them. He also mentions mentions his personal story, so uh, which is right. very powerful and really a good listen. Yeah, we talk about some grief that he's had to deal with in the past, and he was so vulnerable and courageous in sharing with us it, which I so appreciate. Again, stuff that we can all learn from in terms of how to heal. Um, there's just so much going on in the climate today, so really valuable, I think, for everyone. And most importantly, I just felt so connected and so much love for Jeff, and I'm so happy for everything that is filling his world with joy these days. So enjoy, everyone. Enjoy. Hola, Jeff. Hola, ¿qué tal? Muy bien, ¿y usted? ¿Y, y tú? Why am I saying usted? Why am I being so formal with you? <laughs> Total bien, yeah. I'm a very formal guy, as you know about me. As, as I know, speaking to you on this very formal Saturday morning. Exactly. So is your Spanish something you picked up since you've been in Miami? My Spanish is something I picked up when I moved to Tulum a couple of years ago. Oh, so I didn't realize I you moved Tulum. to Tulum. For how yeah, long? I lived in Tulum for three or four months and I took a Spanish intensive there and I got a Spanish professor there and then living in Miami there's a ton of people here who speak Spanish it's like if I go into a store then I'm more likely to speak Spanish than English so I love that so much that's amazing I think so I love languages I lived in Costa Rica for I believe two to three months in undergrad and really? uh, and I took some undergrad classes in Spanish, but I don't get to practice it anymore. And so it's very rusty. But mm-hmm. now that we moved to Austin, Texas, I think there's lots more people who speak Spanish and I want to practice totally. more. And so that's great. I'm jealous that you I get to that. practice in Miami. I love that. I love that. That's super fun. It exercises a different muscle of the brain. Yeah. And also, I just find that you connect with people from different cultures so much more when you can speak to them in their own language. And then it unlocks so much. Like you can read books, uh, watch movies, listen to music. It is so enriching. Totally agree with you. Yeah. There's something to me that's humbling to speak outside of my language. I mean, with the way that I look and what I was born into, I'm constantly in a position of privilege. And (laughs) to be able to be. And so to be able to walk into a barber shop where all of the barbers are from Cuba and to be able to speak Spanish with them, I just look at it as like such a learning opportunity for me. And it's it's just super respectful. So I love that you have that perspective. That is wonderful. 
And speaking of learning, I see you have lots of good books. While you mm-hmm. stepped away, I was peeking. I saw you have Trevor Noah, Born a Crime. That's one of my favorite books. It's so hilarious. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's brilliant. I love like I love the it. circular storytelling. And then I also saw Connect, which I have mm-hmm. on my Kindle, but I haven't read yet. Have you made it through? Any? Gosh, Not yet. I have it here to make it look like I'm smart. but No, I love that though. <laughs> It's also great to have kind of like an inspiration reading book board slash shelf. And you can, when you feel like it, maybe pick up a few pages and just enjoy it and then put it back and get through it eventually. I totally agree. One of the things I learned from, there's this dude, Ramit Sethi, who is a brilliant thinker. Are you familiar with Ramit? No. So he's brilliant on personal finances. He wrote a book called, I will teach you to be rich. And he's just a really thoughtful dude. And one of his money rules is as much as you want on books and on education. Ah, yes. He's like, if you think you're going to buy a book and it's $12 and you can afford to buy a book for $12, understandably Mm -hmm. so, don't hesitate. Buy it. Just being able to grab it off the shelf at some point is really helpful. And like the return on that $12 could be massively life-changing if there's one or two brilliant ideas in it. No, totally resonate with this. It's something my parents told me a lot growing up is that your education is the most valuable thing you can attain in life because it's something no one can take from you. No one can take mm. the knowledge that you amass through life and just keeping an open mind and being curious to your point of being humble and going into these barber shops and learning new perspectives. Oh. Oh. Uh, we already know what we know. And it's it's also funny that the more we know, the more humbled we are and the more uh-huh. we realize we don't know <laughs> exactly right exactly is it the right. dunn-kruger effect is that what that is is that what it is that's a good question <laughs> the dk sure. effect, effect Machin, can yeah, you can right. you google that for us or let us know if it is or is not <laughs> i, I believe that's exactly it is exactly right yeah, yeah we're we're the people who know the least tend to speak up with the most confidence and it turns out exactly. they actually are not really familiar what they're talking about anyway exactly. okay Glad to have you here on this Saturday morning. You are bringing me tons of joy just seeing you in this beautiful blue shirt, super bright, lovely with your nice bookshelf and plants behind you. What is bringing you joy these days? Mm, What is bringing me joy these days? And thank you for your kind words, by the way. (laughs) I appreciate it. Uh, It's true. Comments like that bring me joy to get a nice little appreciation out of an unexpected moment. Um, it's actually one of the things that I work on is I work on being mm. what I might call a master appreciator. I think that mm. for the most part, folks I like that. give critical feedback. They're not always the most skillful at giving critical feedback. <laughs> one of the things that I actually... They're like, you know what? Like, I don't like that just because I don't like it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but one of the things that like I help folks as a leader, I think it's so helpful to say, hey, I really appreciate the way that you spoke up at this time and made such a salient point. I trusted mm-hmm. you a lot more when you did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I so valuable. I agree, and I think the being specific with the feedback, like the fact that you spoke up at this particular point, I found it valuable in this way, and I appreciated you sharing your opinion instead of, "Hey, I like when you speak up," which is less specific. Hundred uh, percent agree with you, and it's actually really good for rewarding positive behavior. Someone does something, if you appreciate them for doing the thing that you want, they're actually more likely to do the thing again than if you say, hey, I wish you did that differently. Nah, let me tell you why you're terrible. 
we're actually oh goodness, way more yes. likely to do the repeated behavior again when it's phrased through an appreciation. Absolutely. You can also use that to, to also have people do stuff you don't like less by not <laughs> acknowledging it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I totally agree with that. There's a whole school of relationship coaching and therapy specifically related to that. Amazing. So, totally with and, and speaking of which, I am excited to learn about all of this stuff from you. You're an executive coach, so I'm looking into getting into all of this with you. I think every single one of us can benefit from uh, some of these frameworks and learnings. And I'm personally just excited to see and understand from you the patterns that you're you're seeing across all these humans that you get to coach. And I know that's such a privilege for you. So thank you for coming on to share with us what you can. But first, before we dive in, Jeff, what is an executive coach and why should someone get one? Yeah. So I think, thank you for asking. And again, thank you for having me here. It's genuinely an honor to be here. Uh, I'm a big fan honor, of yours. You. And I know that you, you have a lot of choice in who you choose to bring on this program. Uh, and You're so I special. genuinely appreciate that you would include me. Thank you. Um, in terms of what is a coach and why should you get a coach? Um, one of the metaphors I use with folks is look at the top athletes in the world. Mm. So if you look at Serena Williams, Serena's had a coach forever. You look at LeBron James, LeBron's had a coach forever. So top athletes get coaches to help them improve. Now, not always has that top athlete's coach been a player themselves. Some of the time they have, some of the time they have. But what a coach can do is they can kind of serve as an outsourced version of you who has Mm. all sorts of knowledge about you and your beliefs and your skills and your capabilities, but is not burdened by all the same mental pathways that you have. And so what you might say out loud that makes a ton of sense because you have connections that make sense, Mm -hmm. a coach might be like, well, I'm not quite sure that those two things actually connect. Help me understand that a little bit better. So sometimes there's a belief that coaches are hired for people who are underperforming, and that totally exists. My belief is that coaching is done at its best when someone who's already a rock star hires a coach and gets taken their game to the next level. So what a coach can do, I sometimes describe myself as a business therapist. I am not qualified to be a therapist at all, but what I can do is I can listen, I can understand, I can push and challenge because I don't have the same stories that, I, that you all have as my clients. I can basically serve as a thought partner. I help people with their leadership, help them be better humans, help them manage their own internal emotions more effectively. And ultimately what this helps them to do is be better performers for their company. So that's kind of what a coach does. They help people perform better at whatever they want to perform better at. My primary coaching is targeted at leaders in particular. I love it. Totally does. And it makes me think of, we go to a gym for instance and work with a coach to Mm -hmm. get better at whatever techniques or Uh, Maybe we want to strengthen our legs or arms or abs or whatever it is goals wise you're working toward. And this coach helps you push yourself to the next level. It doesn't necessarily mean you can't do that by yourself, but they're just there to augment and help you dig into areas that you're struggling with or maybe areas you're not even aware of, of how you can push yourself. And then you mentioned these examples of athletes and all the top athletes have coaches. I also want to... I also want to harp on, you, it's, ha- it's not about being an underperformer. Um, yeah. I think there's always room for improvement. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, presidents have communication coaches. Right. If right. you're a Wall Street CEO, before you go make a presentation for your earnings call quarterly, they meet with communication coaches. What a really good executive coach can do is they can combine all sorts of schools of thought from psychology and business and consulting, and they can kind of package that up in a way that is incredibly digestible practical and has repeatable returns on results. Mm -hmm. So rather than just, here's how you're going to be better on this one presentation, I get more into what's going on where this is the way that you're looking at this presentation. So sure, let's help you with your strategy. Most people come to coaching for help with strategy. I want to be a better leader. I want to learn how to hire and fire someone. I want to learn how to do fundraising. But underneath the strategy is a story. So you can come and people want to lose weight. That's one of the reasons people hire nutrition coaches. But if I have a strategy, how do you lose weight? It's not a trick question. You eat less and you work out more. Yeah. We know that. And so then what's interesting is it's like, okay, I know that I want to eat less. And here I am eating too many calories, even though I know the strategy is eat fewer calories and work out more. Well, what's going on where I'm eating that many calories? Underneath the strategy is a story. And what I mean by a story is a belief about myself or about the world that influences the strategies that I take in any given moment. So strategy, eat less, work out more. That's what I say I want to do. Oh, but here I am and I'm eating actually more than I ever have. What's going on? I know that there's a strategy thing here. Maybe I need a coach to help me with that and help me keep myself accountable. And maybe that works. But often what happens underneath the strategy is a story or a belief. Like there won't be food or I don't love my body or some sort of underlying belief that influences our strategy. Now, even more interestingly, underlying that belief, strategy and story is a state, which is what I would call a nervous system state which is at any one moment we may feel more trusting or more fearful. We may feel more relaxed or we may feel more stressed. And in a moment that I feel more stressed, even if I have a good belief and I know the strategy, I might eat more. If I feel more relaxed, I might not. And so what I would do with as a coach is I help folks with strategy, but I also help them with their story and I help them change their underlying nervous system state on a repeatable basis to help then inform better stories in their minds, beliefs about themselves and about the world, which then informs better strategies. So it's about being this cheerleader that's outside of your mind who can note what your potentially harmful mental patterns are or what stories you're telling yourself that aren't necessarily serving you, really highlighting those and helping you address them. Perfect. Now that. So useful. How would you recommend someone pick a coach before we go into some of the things you're learning with your clients in coaching? It's a great question. It's frankly a challenging question because when you invite a coach into your life, that person, although they're not responsible for your development, they're going to influence your development very deeply. So I'll tell you, for me, about 100% of my clients come through referral. I start working with someone, they then refer someone to me. And referral um, or commonality is really helpful for folks for building trust. To me, the single most important factor with a coach is do I trust this person and do I feel safe and good with them? Because the chemistry of two people together and someone's ability to feel safe 
on the receiving end of coaching and not judged and gotten helps that person have the courage to perhaps try different behaviors or try on different beliefs. And so, yeah, you can have all sorts of fancy letters and credentials and whatever. And like, I am a big fan of coaches going through official coach training. There's a lot of people who can call themselves a coach. Um, there's a coaching governing body called the International Coach Federation, uh, which I'm certified by. And I'm a big believer of folks going that way. And to me, the single most important factor in a coach is safety and trust. Got it. So more maybe if you can try to have a session with this person and see how comfortable you feel, whether they can create a safe space and environment in which you can experiment maybe with unsafe things and just be truly yourself. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I actually offer a complimentary consultation with folks up front to help make sure that they feel good with me and to make sure that I feel good with mm -hmm. them. Because it would be unkind if someone's like, oh, yeah, I really like you. I really, I really want to work with you. And I'm like, eh, you know, I kind of respect you a little bit. I don't know if I want to work with you. That's going to come out sideways in the coaching. So it's a double opt -in. Yeah. And so I think it's really important. I offer those complimentary sessions up front to make sure that we're a good fit. Um, and that's, that's frankly how I think most coaches do it. And I think most coaches get most of their clients through referrals or they go speak at a workshop and people see them and then they come. Yeah, absolutely. So you're an executive coach to CEOs, investors, managers, leaders across a spectrum of industries, companies, et cetera. And I'm so curious across all these humans, what are some of the struggles that you're seeing come up often? Totally. Um, so I think that there's a difference between what folks come to me for and what we talk about up front. And what I actually see is going on underneath the surface that's actually the most helpful for them. Yeah. So some of the things people come to talk about, the more common things are they talk about their relationships, whether with partners, significant others, family, friends, or very often people who they work with, whether they're co-founders together or they have a difficult boss or they have a difficult colleague. That is a classic thing people come to talk about. People also come to talk about business problems, about how to give and receive feedback, about what strategy to choose, about fundraising, about what direction to take a company. They come to talk about leadership tactics and management tactics, um, how they can just lead folks better. Often folks come at a time of transition in their business, uh, whether they're transitioning their business or they're transitioning their own leadership style. Uh, and then often people come in because they have a really hard time taking care of themselves or managing stress or anxiety or fear or emotions. I often help folks a lot with what's going on internally and help them just process their emotions and make sense of the world around them. So that's what they come to me for. That's what I would call the presenting problem. But often what's happening underneath the presenting problem is there's an issue going on with folks' consciousness. And what I mean by that, Jen, is I mean that the way we see the world, the lenses that we see the world through are very much informed by our life experience and may or may not be representative of reality. And so often what happens is folks come in with one problem. I got to deal with my co-founder. I want to think about how to raise money or I want to speak more effectively. And what's really happening is not just they need to know how to do that strategy, which they totally do and I help them with, 
but they need to actually get underneath the strategy to how they're seeing it and what they're believing about themselves or about other people. And we need to go do work on their unconscious narratives of the world, which really comes down to the difference between fear and love or fear and trust. That is the recurring, recurring, recurring theme in my practice. It's about fear versus trust. All right. Tell me more about fear and about trust. We can start with fear. What are the fears? Totally. Totally. So there are three core fears that humans have. And this is true to all humans, regardless if you're a founder or if you're a normal human walking down the sidewalk. Um, and the three core fears, this comes from a gentleman named Hale Dwoskin, who wrote the Sedona Method. And these three core fears are people are scared of their security, their approval, and control. So again, security, approval, and control. Yeah. So what do those actually mean is the next question. Yeah. So security is lack of safety. Now, here's the interesting thing. Sometimes there are actual physical threats to people's safety. 100%. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is a perceived threat to someone's safety. And often I am talking about a perceived threat to someone's safety based on an identity they hold of themselves or a view of themselves as X type of person. And it's really hard for us as humans to distinguish between what's a real threat to our safety. Oh, I'm genuinely physically unsafe. I might like get hurt or I might get injured or I might die. And uh, oh, I have a concept of myself as what I would call a perceived threat to your ego-based identity structure. And it's really hard to differentiate those. So as an example, people might not speak up or give feedback to their manager because they're scared that the manager will fire them, who has right. basically control of their job security. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So and there's lots of real... people can relate to that. Totally. And like, let me be really clear. There's a real concept here called psychological safety. Sometimes not the best idea to speak up to your manager. Where it gets a little bit more tricky than that is when your manager says, yeah, please tell me feedback. Tell me what I can be doing better. Tell me what I, like what I can, how I can help. And the person is over there believing stuff that's going on in their own head that has nothing to do with the other person where they're unsafing themselves because of their own beliefs around the world or what might happen at some point in the future. That's a different analogous concept to psychological safety. If you're in a workplace, psychological safety is real. It must exist. It must be okay to make mistakes. There are certain cultures where that might not be the case. And sometimes if I work with leaders of those firms, I work to, with them to help make more psychologically safe cultures. So that's threat number one is if I do this, then I'm going to die. That's basically the threat. And it's my ego-based identity structure is good. Mm -hmm. Approval is I want to fit in. And I want to belong and I want people to like me and I want people to think I'm smart. So this is so, so, so common. Have you ever, Jennifer, wanted to not go to dinner with someone who asked you to go to dinner and it's really hard to say no? Has <laughs> that ever happened? I'm laughing because <laughs> I'm laughing because yeah, so many times. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. And, it's, and yeah, it's about, you don't like, mm, 
Yeah. And I think there's so many things that play into that, right? It's you don't want to upset someone or maybe you wanted to, and then things got really busy and now you're really not looking forward to it. You'd much rather either do this other thing that you need to do or, um, yeah, absolutely. Totally. So it's so normal or, Oh, I actually don't have capacity to take on this project or, mm -hmm. you know, miss investor. I know you're asking me to do this, but, I, but no, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to focus over here. Mm -hmm. But so often folks say yes when they mean no. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. of a perceived threat to their approval. Really, really, really challenging to deal with. Now, why is this so challenging? Because our brains, our prefrontal cortices, are way less developed than our whole bodies. And so our brains, can't, our bodies have been around for millions of years and thousands, like cavemen and even before through process of evolution. But our like rational thinking brain has a really hard time differentiating what's a real threat and what's a perceived threat. So let's imagine you go to dinner with someone and they, and you don't want to go to dinner with someone and they say no, or they, they get upset. You say, hey, you know what? I don't want to do this right now. Like then what happens yeah. if you were to say no? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm going to make this even more real because yeah, make it more real. I just, for instance, this week, uh, was struggling with this where I got a request in, um, uh -huh. that, really didn't make much sense for me. And I, I sat there for five, five minutes and I was thinking about this. I was like, this request doesn't make sense because it doesn't serve me in any way right now. And I'm really out of capacity in this moment. There's these things I really need to focus on and do well. And I, I don't have capacity to take other things on my plate. And I sat there for five minutes thinking, I just feel bad. I don't want to let this person down. Yeah. But if I do this, I'm not going to be serving myself. Yeah. I don't want to maybe not show up with the energy that I would want to show oh. up in, even if I were to say yes to this task. And, and I really did have this thought of, ah, oh, how will my no to them be received? They're probably going to be upset with me, probably uh -huh. be sad. And I, I, and I challenged myself and I pushed myself to write this reply in the night mm -hmm. as nice, but also honest way as possible. I said, totally. Hey, these are the things I need to focus on and I must manage my time and my energy for these reasons. Yeah. If there are ways I can help in these three capacities in future, please let me know. Yeah. And I'm so excited to connect with you again in future. And I hit send yeah. and this was yesterday. And, and honestly, I thought about it in the evening. I was like, oh man, I, I hit send and I, I just hit send and I had a bunch of things to do during the day. And then in the evening I was thinking about it. It's like, oh, I feel bad that I let this person down and I wonder how they're feeling. But honestly, I'm happy I did that because it was serving yeah. me. Um, yeah. And so, so just to make it more real, to answer your totally. question, what's the worst that could happen? Maybe they're a little sad, but I do uh, feel good about the way I did it in the sense that I was very yeah. honest and upfront about what situation totally. I was in, what I could do, what I couldn't do. And it's not like I shut totally. the door completely. I said, I'm excited to connect again in future. So I think totally. I did right by myself and right by them, hopefully. So to your point, totally. what's the worst that can happen is maybe a little feelings get hurt for a little while, but I'm, I say truth. <laughs> so, so first of all, kudos to you. That is not easy 
to do. It's quite simple, but that doesn't mean that it's easy for all the reasons you said. I don't want to let this person down. Like, I want to be able to interact with them in the future. I want to be helpful to them. It actually brings us to our third threat. I'll go back to approval in a second, which is control. Mm-hmm. I want to control other people's perceptions of me and their feelings related to me. Said differently, I don't want this person to be sad. So often people disappoint themselves rather than risk disappointing others. I'm not even convinced that you saying no in that moment meant that you let that person down. I can totally see that belief. Yeah. But would you be willing to consider that the exact opposite of that might be true? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe they appreciate the fact that now they have a really clear understanding of what I can and cannot help with. And they can kind of filter their needs and know what can I go to Jennifer with and what can I not go to her with? And it's just helpful for them to know that. Yeah. So I would never want to operate with you if you were out of consent operating with me. Right. That's true. That makes sense. And often we don't say no. That's another thing people come to me to talk about, about saying no. They tend to operate out of their own consent, which makes it really hard for me to trust them if they're telling me yes. I'm like, I don't know. They might feel a bit sticky with their yes or their no. Absolutely. So I'll make it even more real too, because I had this other thing where I was asking someone for, I was inviting them to do something and I was, and I told them, Hey, like no pressure. I don't need this from you only if you're excited. And they reply with a kind of lukewarm yes. And I replied back because I I was like, hey, no, really, I only if this is something you're interested in, I don't want you to be doing something you're not excited about just for that exact reason, because I don't want to operate with you if you're not if you're not in consent and happy and excited to do something. So it's actually you doing me a favor, being really honest with me. And that was me pushing back to say, hey, no, like, actually, be honest with me, Uh, be honest with yourself, because um, yeah, it doesn't serve, it doesn't serve me either. So that's a great point. It doesn't serve anyone. So there's a beautiful saying from Glennon Doyle, who I think took Mm -hmm. it from someone else, but I can't quite say who it was. And she says, boundaries are the space at which I can love both you and me at the same time. Yeah. I love that. Ah, this is already so impactful, Jeff. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. And so going back to these three threats, approval feels scary because when we were cave people back in the day, if we got disapproved of, we got kicked out of the tribe. If we got kicked out of the tribe, we're off by ourselves alone and unable to defend ourselves in like small little tribe based societies. And so we might actually get eaten or killed. So often folks hate rejection or hate feeling like, oh, this person might not like me or this might risk something because they're afraid of dying. So it's a safety thing. That makes sense. Yeah. And then same thing with control. If this person might feel sad if I do this, then they won't like me, which then means I'll feel unsafe, which then means I'm going to die. So security, approval, and control tend to really all relate to safety and security. And the issue is not that we have these fears, like it's fine for those to be the fears. It's what happens when we believe those fears and let them run us at the expense of what's most true for us. So here's a really clear example of that. I don't want this person to feel sad or not like me if I say, no, I'm not available for that right now, but here's what I can do to help, just like you experienced the other day. When we disappoint ourselves at the expense of disappointing other people based on stories we're making up about how disappointed they will be or not, 
or based on our incapacity to be with other feelings of other people's feelings of disappointment and hurt about us, really about them and what they believe about the world. And don't trust in our ability to repair over a period of time or basically abdicate the present for some made up future. We scare ourselves. So people, people get really serious in fundraising rather than be themselves because it feels really serious. It's like an existential threat of fundraising doesn't go perfectly. That's <laughs> true. Or, or oh, I want to like give this person feedback. Even if I'm the CEO, I want to give them feedback or I want to delegate something or I want to give my partner feedback or I'm scared to say this thing to my partner. There's so much future tripping about a time that we may be unsafe in the future or unloved in the future and basically come back and die. And what I try to get people to do is I just try to help them acknowledge that that's how they're seeing the world and ask them, number one, if they can genuinely have acceptance for themselves, genuinely have compassion for themselves. Be like, oh, yeah, just a human being who's scared. It's okay. We're all scared. It's the human condition. We're all just trying to figure it out. Yeah, we're all trying to figure it out and we're all making stuff up all the time. And if people are genuinely willing to be like, yeah, it's okay, I'm just scared. Yeah, I'm They scared. might then, yeah, I'm just scared. They might then be willing to say, huh, maybe I'll look at the situation differently. I might be willing, independent of what's happening in the outside world, to try something different. So we talk about fear and trust. Can I trust that even if this person's hurt, that that's okay? That will be okay. Can I trust that if I make this leap and put myself out there and it doesn't work, that I'll be able to feel my feelings and process it? Can I trust that this person will do this or won't do this? Or that even if I feel out of control for a second, that I have all the control I need right now. And this is not like a spiritual bypassing thing, but again, there's the content why people come and then how they're relating to the issue. So that's a long, 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 long answer about the root of human fear and how to manage it. Hope that's helpful. No, very helpful. So what I was hearing about fear is with security, approval, and what was the last one again? Control. With security, approval, and control, it seems like these are rooted in the fact that our brains are not as developed as our bodies Mm -hmm. and we're catching up and also some of the stories that we we make up and i say make up because they're not necessarily objectively true they're based off of assumptions we're coming up with that are based off of stories that we make up based off of the patterns we've seen in life before and so and then on the other side comes trust which is how can we build up to be able to work or or be more productive or cope more with some of these circumstances that are holding us back. In terms of building trust, one thing that comes to mind for me is potentially in this work situation where you mentioned co-founders or someone, a subordinate who's scared of asking for something at work, which these are things that come up a lot that I hear a lot about in terms of work conflicts. Let's say the subordinate asking their manager or their boss for something. The fear that, oh, my boss will fire me if I do that. Um, and, And building trust in that example, to me, what comes up is potentially questioning your assumption, first of all, that that'll happen. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there are cases to your point where there isn't psychological safety at work. And these, there are cultures like this, but, 
So trust your own judgment and depending on the culture, but can you test that assumption and kind of bring that up maybe at a one-on-one with your boss and see, Hey, these are, some things are important to me that we haven't discussed. Can we create a space and time for us to talk about those? And that could be a way you, you can test whether or not your boss is willing to hear you out. Um, What are other ways and other examples in which we can build trust and and manage some of these issues that come up with fear, with security and approval and control? It's a great question. Um, And I want to distinguish two things. Number one, trust related to other people and trust related to self. And actually, even a third thing would be trust related to something bigger than other people or self. Call it the universe, call it God, call it source, call it whatever words you want to use to describe something bigger than you or me So you talk about building trust with someone else. There's this beautiful quote from this ancient Stoic philosopher named Seneca. And basically the essence of it is we suffer more in our imaginations than we do in reality. Yes, that's so true. We suffer more in our imaginations than we do in reality. We all ruminate again and again and again and again and again about the worst case scenario. If I deliver this feedback to my boss or to my direct report, then it's going to be doom and gloom and the whole world's going to end. So you talk about how can you actually build trust, do it, see how it feels, even if it doesn't go well, even if it goes poorly, more often than not, way more often than not, it does not go nearly as poorly as the made up scenario that we've made in our mind where the end of days. Yeah, so true. So that's really helpful to distinguish between what actually happens when something goes poorly and what we've made up about what might happen when something. Can I say two things here? Because I think this is really, really important. Another personal example I want to share is this week there. So I'm growing the podcast. I'm excited to have this be a space where we can have meaningful, important conversations and have a safe space to be vulnerable and grow with one another. And there is this person who I am excited to get to know better, learn from. And I reached out to them and they got back to me and it was, I got this like, jolt of anxiety but it's good good anxiety it's like oh my god they got back to me and they said text me now and just let's just talk and I was like oh my goodness let's talk now holy cow I gotta pump myself up what will I say how will this go and I basically had had a pep talk with myself and Marcin also was like I was like maybe I just call them tomorrow maybe I just put this off and was like no Jennifer just call them now what's the worst that could happen it's so interesting to see how your brain starts to make this into such a big deal and called them and it was a wonderful conversation they were very friendly, super helpful. And I'm so glad I did it right then and that I didn't wait and make this such a big deal in my head. And then the other thing I want to say is, um, so for instance, I'm scared of heights and I want to bring up an example of when I was like, went with my nieces to Hawaii and we, this was after graduation, we went for a trip to celebrate as a family. And I was so scared to jump off of this cliff and I just stayed there because I was just like, I'm just going to stay and it was, I don't know what I was waiting for, but it just get, kept yeah. getting bigger and bigger in my head and eventually jumped. And honestly, the jump was way easier than the fear before the jump. So yeah. those, are two, those are two awesome examples. 
And what I love about them, in the first one, you say our brain can do those things. You, it sounds like, didn't give yourself, thankfully so, enough time for your brain to build up all sorts of stories about what the worst case scenario could have been. And so you acted, and it sounds, you know, as an example, you waited a day or two or three. By then, you might have been like, oh, man, this is going to be terrible. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to do this thing. But you acted, and you're like, oh, actually, went really well. Yeah. Yeah. And in the second scenario, when you're thinking about jumping, we have a fear responses, fight, flight, freeze. Sounds like you went into a bit of a freeze. And to be second, clear, this is, is jumping into the water. Not yeah, jumping into the water, whether it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, Very it's totally normal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. totally normal, whether it's two feet or whatever the amount of exactly. it is. It's like our bodies, again, physicality, fear feels like threat in the body. Fear tends to be tightness in the chest, mm -hmm. pulling or gripping or swirling in the stomach or pulling or grinding in the arms. Mm -hmm. And when we feel those things, our bodies do different things. We freeze. I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump. And at some point, something happens. There's all sorts of techniques, which I work with folks on, primarily using breath as a way to mm. basically come and feel a little bit safer within themselves. Because when people go into fight, flight, freeze, they tend to leave their bodies go up into their minds, start doing thought-based looping and start believing a bunch of stuff that may or may not be true. Like this person's going to reject me. This conversation's going to go poorly or X, Y, Z thing is going to happen. And when you actually feel safe to jump, you jump. You feel yeah. safe to have the conversation. And maybe at the beginning of a conversation, this is why often, by the way, folks who are giving presentations tend to be a little bit tighter in the first 60 seconds. And they're like, ah, it's fine. It's like the activation energy required and the things we scare ourselves with get so in folks' ways and totally understandably so. It's all beautiful self-protection mechanisms. Yeah. But when people start to learn how to manage those things, they can then make different choices where they might not have recognized they had a choice in the first place. Right. Because it otherwise feels completely habitual. Like, this is what I do. This is what I do. This is what I do. Rather than like, oh, I'm just scared. I have I'm a just choice. scared. I'm just a human being and I'm scared and I'm figuring it out. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly Amazing. Right. So I just wanted yeah. to bring those up also to, to your point of do it, practice it, get the reps in and get your yeah. body familiar with how it feels to do it. So you can start to overcome those stories that you're telling, you tell yourself. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then there's trust with self and trust with, you know, something bigger than self. So you can build trust with someone else through doing the reps. You can build trust with yourself through continuing to genuinely act in what feels most true for you and being like, oh, wow, I made it through this hard situation before. Like I can do hard things. We actually look at the evidence of something. I was talking with someone yesterday. Um, I spoke at the school yesterday. And they were saying, you know, I'm, I'm worried when I get up on stage that people are going to think I'm terrible. And I say, well, how many times have you gotten up on stage? They're like, oh, you know, like eight or ten. I said, and how many times have you heard the feedback, this person's terrible? None. So like, oh, that's interesting. So would you be willing to consider that your fear of you being terrible actually is not happening out there? It's happening in here based on a belief. When you get folks to actually look at hard evidence of how they've performed in past situations that tends to increase a lot of self-trust. And then trust in something bigger than us helps us feel like we'll be supported regardless of how a certain thing goes in a certain moment. What tends to happen is people get super attached to outcomes 
our processes playing out a certain way. I try to control the reaction. I try to get a certain outcome, which is inevitably out of my control. And it's like, if it doesn't go that way, it's going to be the worst thing in the entire world. And so we don't do the thing because we're scared about not getting the outcome that we want. And yet through repeated behavior again and again and again and again, we find that we're continuing to be here. We might be uncomfortable by all means. More often than not, the discomfort passes and we feel safe and okay again. So with control as well, it's also building in the reps and and trusting that it'll be okay, even if you don't necessarily control all the cards. So as an example, there have been plenty of clients who I would have loved to have worked with who, for whatever reason, chose a different coach. And I might be really upset in the moment. Oh my God, my whole business is going to go away. This person doesn't work with me. They can go over here. They think I'm terrible. They think I'm dumb. And yet I continue to find if I should just look at the trajectory of my practice, I work with the perfect people. I work with exactly who I need to work with. Otherwise, I'm arguing with the weather. Oh, I should be working with this person. I'm not right. working with them. It should be if sunny. If I have to believe, I sh- it should be sunny today and it's rainy. It's old man yelling at cloud. Yeah. I'm a big fan of complying with reality. I, like all human beings, resist reality most days because I, want, I believe I can control reality and I believe I can control the weather. That's ultimately what a lot of us are trying to do. Like old man yelling at cloud. Oh, you should do this. You shouldn't behave like this. You should do this. And what I find is that when I stop doing that... I have another choice. I can use my energy more effectively to basically recognize, okay, it's effectively raining, metaphorically speaking. Maybe if I want to go outside, I'll bring an umbrella. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll wear a raincoat. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just won't go outside and I'll stay at home today. And these are metaphors for dealing with other people and they're saying something and I don't want them to say that. Or like, I didn't get a client that I wanted and... For me just to sit there and be like, well, I should have gotten this client years and years and years later. But I just, it's just, I'm arguing with a cloud from three years ago. Not helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, tying security, approval, and control all together in a scenario where, yeah. uh, let's say, you getting one person getting a client or a mm-hmm. job, for instance that ties to their security, that ties to their approval, and that ties to their sense of control and not getting Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Perhaps just like, this is the reality. What can I learn from this situation? And how can I use this to be better in my next application or with the next client that I'm getting? It might be a lot more productive. Rather than spending years resenting the fact that I didn't get a job. Yes. Yeah. This is so helpful and really resonates, I think, with most people can resonate to everything that we're discussing here. Totally. Another little nuance on that same thing is often when we feel unsafe, we blame. We blame other people. We blame ourselves. We blame the situation. That's where should fits in. And we feel disempowered. We lack ownership or agency in our own lives. Oh, it's their fault for not getting back to me. It's their fault or, oh, I should have done this. We blame rather than accept and take responsibility. So another theme I work with folks on is recognizing when they're blaming people and when they get super righteous about blaming other people, again, the difference between being right and righteous. Mm. And what I do with folks is I help them be like, well, here's how I contributed to this situation. 
here's how I'm responsible for what I say I don't want. I say I don't want to be in a conflict with my co-founder. And yet here I am believing they're a jerk and they're mean. And I'm literally not listening to a word that they say. Here I am saying I want to be in a better relationship with myself. I want to take better care of myself. And I'm not exercising. I'm not sleeping well. And I'm blaming it on the fact that I'm working too much without saying, well, I have the choice. Who's deciding how much I work? So I work with folks a bunch on kind of like taking responsibility for the direction of their life. I love that. Another fear how, versus trust. Right. How, what are tools for folks to get better at accepting responsibility? Because interestingly for me, it's, it almost gives me a better sense of control. If in any yeah. situation where I don't like how it's going, I can see how did I contribute to this situation? Yeah. And, and I always feel better being able to walk away. And sometimes there's nothing you did wrong. So very important. There are many situations where there's nothing you did wrong. There's nothing else you could have done. And to your point, trust the fact that you didn't it, be okay with not having control in these situations uh, and moving on. And life is definitely not fair. And there's so many unfair mm -hmm. things that happen to wonderful people. Um, totally. But for folks who maybe struggle with looking inward and in situations, we all, we all get into those, right? When totally. we're very heated and we feel very yeah. passionately about whatever side we're on and we're having an argument and it's just harder to, to kind of see, Oh, I contributed to this. How, how can we kind of wake up and, a, and get better? There? It's a, it's a great question. So you talk about the heated typically when we're unwilling to take responsibility, it's because we feel unsafe going back to mm. security approval and control. So step one is get your nervous system right. What does that mean? That might mean go to sleep. That might mean take a bath. <laughs> that might mean go out in nature. That might be go for a walk. Might be let some time pass. Might mean take a bubble bath, do something nice for yourself. Because without our nervous system state being right, we're in threat. Yeah. We're fearing our security approval and control being threatened. And so we're unwilling to take mm -hmm. responsibility. So the safer we feel in our own nervous systems when we're not in fight, flight, or freeze, we are more likely to be willing to take a look at how we're contributing to a situation. And it comes back to being willing to accept and vocalize, I'm scared. I'm a human being. I'm figuring it out. We're all figuring it out. And I'm just scared in this moment. Yeah. How many partner conflicts between two romantic partners could be saved? It's just, ah, I'm scared. Yeah. I'm just a little nervous <laughs> that you're going to leave me. I'm a little nervous <laughs> that you're going to be upset with me. Yeah. Or I'm nervous oh. that you're, you are maybe interpreting something I did in wrong, incorrectly, not wrong, incorrectly. Like you're not seeing maybe where I'm coming from and yeah. I actually care and I don't mean it. And I'm scared that you're going to have the wrong impression. Totally. Yeah. It's a hundred percent right. I'm scared you're going to have the wrong impression, which is I'm scared you're not going to approve of me. I'm scared right, you're right, not going right. to like me. Yeah. It's same. I like similar you a idea. lot. You know? Yeah. So I like you. I like you too. But imagine how many conflicts would be safe. Right. It's like, you know what? Your, your experience matters to they really care and value about what you have to say. I recognize that right now I'm so wound up that I can't hear a word that you're saying. 
Mm. Would you be willing to take 10 minutes apart? Oh, I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> So that way we can come Honestly, back together. I can't hear a word you're saying right now. <laughs> yeah, it's I hear you and I immediately go, nope, you're wrong. Nope, you're wrong. Here's where you misunderstood me. That's not how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the ways to take responsibility is to literally feel physically safe to do so, which means to get your nervous system back in order. That's yeah. the that's the most important thing and the most repeatable thing. There's also a fantastic question from a man named Jerry Colonna, who is a brilliant coach, and he asks the question, How am I complicit in creating the circumstances that I say I don't? How am I complicit in creating the circumstances that I say I don't want? Right. Is it you're not taking care of yourself? You're not allowing yourself to be calm and connected with you and patient. Maybe you're not sleeping enough. You're not exercising enough. You're overworked and exhausted or you're interacting with people who aren't serving you or you're doing things you don't want to be doing because you're, you want other people to approve. Um, I haven't given clear guidance on how I want this person to do this project. I haven't made an explicit ask for how I want to be treated. I am going into a meeting with investors looking at them as sheep who are just here to play my game. Like I'm energetically giving off an impression that I don't actually want to be there. I'm not explaining myself clearly. I'm making assumptions about you. I'm focused on my own inner world rather than what it is you're saying. There is always something to take responsibility for, healthy responsibility for. And with that and a desire to learn and not protect, because again, we have to feel safe enough to be willing to learn, Mm -hmm. rapid learning is possible. So great. Yeah, this is so great. Sorry, I'm just pausing because this is amazing. You're great. Thank you. Um, okay. Anything comes, anything else comes to mind you think is worthwhile for people to know about in this space? Love yourself, love each other, love the universe. Stop arguing with reality. Yeah. It's pretty much the whole last. It's fascinating how simple it is, right? It's so simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It's very simple. For if, like, if I'm in a fight with my partner, it's very simple to be like, oh, take time, take a pause. I just told people to do that. But man, if I'm in the moment and I'm wound up and I'm rearing to go, that doesn't mean that it's easy to do that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's sim- especially, it's- especially with the closest people. Like I think about my family, yeah. I think about my mom and my dad. They wind me up the most, you know? And I'm totally. like, and I know I should calm down. I should not respond. I should not react. I should take a beat, but I yeah. can't help myself in the moment. But it's hard. Yeah, like, <laughs> off to the races. I got to tell you what I think. Yeah. Similarly, it's simple that people tend to operate at their best when they take good care of themselves. Eat well, sleep, exercise, journal, meditate, drink water, be in nature. It's that simple. That doesn't mean that it's easy to make time for one of those every single day or all of those every single day. Yeah. But we know the formula. It just doesn't mean we follow it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I like to say it comes back to the processes you set for yourself because you fall to the level of your processes and trying to get those to set yourself up for success. And and in terms of taking care of yourself, trying to get that in like in 
however way you can each day and totally. each day it's, it won't always be perfect, but you can always improve. Jeff, this was totally. wonderful. I want to transition us to something similar on a similar topic mm -hmm. of grief. Mm -hmm. If we can go there. Um, mm -hmm. because I think in this climate, we've gone through COVID. Lots of people have lost loved ones. We have the Ukraine war. Lots of people are struggling yeah. with that, myself included. Um, yeah. and just the economy and, and people are anxious and grieving. And yeah. I know you have personal experience with grief. Your yeah. ex-fiance passed too soon and would yeah. love to hear about your experience healing and yeah. how we all can learn about healing together. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, talk about grief and anxiety. Even when I hear you speak, I can feel my stomach churn mm -hmm. and I can feel the pressure behind my eyes. So what I want to suggest is that emotions are energy in motion. Grief mm -hmm. and anxiety are physical sensations that can be overwhelmingly uncomfortable like to the point of like, I'm not safe. Yeah. It's really challenging. And what often happens is we feel so uncomfortable with our own physical sensations that we try to run away from them and numb them in a variety of ways. I have lots of strategies to do this, to numb my sensations. But grief and anxiety are basically just like massive waves of energy that run through us and thought-based and physicality-based. And often people talk about like, oh, letting it out. What you're actually doing is you're physically moving mm -hmm. energy. Often folks who cry on the other end of a cry are like, ah, right. stillness. Right. Yeah, it's a beautiful experience on the other end. So you talk about my experience with grief about four and a half years ago, Molly, who I was engaged to at the time, tragically passed away unexpectedly. And like my whole world got flipped on its head. <sighs> See, I'm like even moving energy right now mm -hmm, <laughs> as we're talking. Mm -hmm. And like, to me, grief was basically, I had this vision of what my, I thought my future would look like, and it would never look like that. I also had a vision of what I thought my past was and how I would be able to relate to it and recognize that the way I viewed the past would also be different as well. And so grief to me is just like this overwhelming sense of loss and terror and pain and hurt and sadness and anger and anguish all mixed up in this incredibly potent cocktail, which just results in like complete confusion and disorientation and feeling powerless and out of control. So my whole world was flipped upside down. I didn't know why I was alive. I didn't know if I'd be able to make it from the beginning of one day to the end of the next day. I lost trust in myself. I lost trust in the universe. Nothing felt safe at all. When like someone so young and vivacious and bright and beautiful could just out of nowhere be gone like and it frankly took me it's still here today, right? Like it took me yeah. really like six months before my overwhelming sensation was not grief. It took me three months until I had one good day. Mm. Literally took me three months until I had one good day. I 
had some good moments. At first, I judged myself for having good moments. Like, how could I be happy when this terrible thing has just happened? But it took me three months until I strung together a day where I was like, wow, I'm genuinely happy to be alive. Mm -hmm. And then, holy moly, did I judge myself after that. Um, to me, how grief and letting... How did I get there? A ton of pain, devastation, loneliness, feeling completely confused, like relying on other people. I, for the first time in my life, experienced such an immense amount of curiosity from folks who were like, wow, we don't get the world the way that you see the world. Like, really? I got immense curiosity. And so... I felt incredibly grateful that I had so many people in my life who expressed their love for me so beautifully, didn't try to control me or put their expectations on me, and were just basically like, how can I help? And unfortunately, the answer was, I don't know, there's nothing you can do. There's literally nothing you can do. There's literally nothing I can do. Sometimes stuff just sucks and hurts, and it took weeks, months to be willing to get to a point where like there was one good day and then, you know, six more bad months and on and on and on and on. And like, even to this day out of nowhere, I'll get slammed by a wave of grief. As recently as this past week, I got slammed by a wave of grief related to Molly. And this is four and a half years later. And just like, out of nowhere, it's just like, the whole world doesn't make sense. I feel unsafe. I'm incredibly uncomfortable. It feels really challenging to interact with other humans. I want to crawl into a hole. I, to me, I heard this beautiful saying, grief is unexpressed love. It's like we have this thing that we are so loving about and this vision of how we think our lives are going to play out and it doesn't play out. It's just no one's quite figured out how to manage or deal with grief other than like to me, one of my fundamental beliefs with grief is accept everything, accept everything, accept your resistance, accept your judgments, accept your fears. Oh, like it's so easy to be like, am I doing this right? What are other people going to think? What am I going to think? It's just a way to abdicate all of this physical discomfort. And to me, accept everything, allow everything. I want to go for a sleep, great. I need to have a drink tonight, great. Like, I'm not a fan of people medicating themselves on a long-term basis to avoid pain. I don't think that's helpful. But especially in the initial waves of grief, whatever anyone can do to just feel as safe and as not uncomfortable as they can, and stop judging themselves because there's a lot of second layer or second dagger judgment that folks have that I know I had and I still sometimes have related to grief. To me, the stopping of the judgment and just allowing of the primary experience is really helpful. Yeah. Two things that come up for me in what you just described, and thank you, Jeff, for sharing with me. Sure. Two things that come up are, A, the judgment that you felt in yourself of, being happy and you had your one good day. Mm -hmm. What comes up for me is I was so fortunate to get to meet Molly, hang out with her a few times and she loved you. And I think she would want you to be happy. And totally. like, she, I think she would be so happy that you're happy that you 
are living life today to the fullest. I don't, or as well as you are doing. And I don't think she would want you to be grieving and distraught for the rest of your, your time. And so it's so interesting how we judge ourselves for, for that. And I think anyone would have those feelings. It's so normal and human. Um, and then the other thing is what you described of you just, people were asking you, what can I do? And it, it's just, you don't know, right? You don't know what you can do. And it just feels like your world is turned upside down. Your future doesn't look like how you thought it would, neither your past. Um, and just, it takes the time settling in and going through the pain to heal and accepting the reality and accepting the fact that you really have no control. Um, which is something that comes up for all of us. Like, I have, like, I want to be able to control my reality. So, yeah. Uh, and it's such a process of just accepting that and then just going through it, right? There's no way yeah. to the other side but through. Yeah. In terms yeah. of healing, um, so I'm hearing time and I'm hearing mm -hmm. acceptance and loving mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. surrounding yourself with people who want to love you. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else that was helpful? Any, anything mm -hmm. in, that you learned about healing? Yeah, a ton. Um, one school of thought that's been very helpful for me is called somatic experiencing, which is actually physically feeling the sensations rather than thinking I'm sad. So when I can actually touch into the energy of the energy in motion, when I can actually feel the pain, it tends to actually move through and get digested. So somatic experiencing has been really helpful. I mean, I, even before I started somatic experiencing, it was like, I'm willing to let myself cry. I'm willing to let myself scream. I'll go out into nature where it's like quiet and I'll scream and just get angry. Um, or like, I don't need to manage myself a certain way to perceive, portray an image to the world. Like I can just be sad and devastated. So I actually think letting myself have my emotions was incredibly helpful and somatic experiencing is one of the ways in which I've done that. Other things that have been helpful for me, you mentioned it comes back to processes. My habits and routines have been incredibly helpful for me. I journal every day and meditate every day. I exercise every day. I am in nature every day. This is not, I track all of this stuff. This is not an understatement. I've been doing this for four years at this point. It's like, to me, that's my recipe for what helps me feel like me. So yeah. I have a lot of habits and routines that I do. I also have a therapist. I have a coach. I'm a big fan of folks having therapists and coaches if it works well for them. Uh, so those are a few of the other things. I also spend a ton of time in nature and I defined what my vision of my life would look like. And what was clear is my vision of my life from when Molly was alive was no longer available to me. And so I took all the time that I needed to create a new vision of my life based on my truth, which meant rather than go live in New York or San Francisco where most of our classmates moved, I went to move to Sun Valley, Idaho to the middle of the mountains to go skiing so I could be in nature every day because that's what felt most true to me. I started this coaching business because that's what felt most true to me without knowing whether or not it would work or what would happen. It was just like, this is how I want to live. Like 
I'm not willing to live for some sort of made up future that may or may not ever come. Sure. Having delayed gratification, having like an ability to look into the future is helpful, but only living for that point in the future and missing the whole life I'm living right now, not as helpful. So those are some of the things that have been really helpful for me. I just want to give you a big hug. Thank you for sharing this. Mm Thank you for asking. It's just so human, so relatable on so many levels and so useful for for so many of us to hear. Let's bring it back uh, up a little. You mentioned you decided to go coaching uh, because that's what felt most true to you. Why did you want to go into coaching? Why did I want to go into coaching? Fully honest answer is when I was at Stanford, I discovered coaching and I was a coach in my second year to a group of first years and I loved it. And Molly, who we've just been talking about, also loved how much I loved coaching. Mm-hmm. And when she passed away, like I was used to be working in private equity and like I love private equity. It's a fantastic that. industry. But for me, like thinking about the next incremental drill bits company or anesthesia company just didn't matter as much as human to human connection and being able to help people. And when my whole world flipped on its head, I recognized that everyone's walking around with some sort of a flip on their head world that I may know about or I may know nothing about. And if I could help partner with folks to help them understand themselves more deeply, if I could not judge them and hold them with immense curiosity, which I was able to do as a result of my experience that I've been through, and be able to help them be more effective in their lives and basically put the world right side up again without having to go through the pain that I experienced, like that to me was a life worth living and a way to honor myself while also doing something that I know that Molly would be super proud of. And So that's how I decided to start coaching. And your clients are also fortunate to have you because of this experience and who you are and because that this is what drives you. You've discovered that humans and people is the most meaningful thing to you. And I so yeah. resonate. Um, yeah. And we all have our own journeys and how we get to the things that we care and want to spend our time on the most. And it's such a joy to see you and see how much that you've been thriving in this uh, and how great you are at it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say. And we all know we're going to die. Like everyone knows that. People don't live that in their nervous system because that's incredibly unsafe. And so we talk about, oh, if I were at the end of my life and I were on my deathbed, here's what I would look back on and do it differently. Like I have that programmed into my body. And so I can help people without judging them or making them wrong basically start living the lives that they wish that they had when they were on their deathbed and I can start helping them do that today. And I can do that through helping them with their consciousness, with their psychology and with their business. So that's why I decided to do it because it just combines a lot of my unique flavors of the world and what I can uniquely help people with because there's plenty of things I cannot uniquely help people with. Yeah. Amen to that. What are you seeing across your clients that is giving you excitement for humanity? Mm We talked a lot about the challenges yeah. and stuff that we're struggling with. What are you seeing that's exciting? It's a great question. Resilience. Like mm. 
we all have psychological immune systems that are incredibly strong. So we have a physical immune system that's very strong. I took that term, by the way, from Lori Gottlieb. She's brilliant. She wrote a book. Maybe you should talk to someone. Once upon a time, one of my friends recommended that I read it at a wedding recently. It was you. And I've read it (laughs) since then. It's so (laughs) good. It's really good. good. And yeah, so funny cool. the way she she writes about it. I'm so glad. Totally. So she talks about the psychological immune system, and I see that played out every day with my clients. I see people have these challenging conversations that they're afraid to have and build up self-trust and actually be closer to people. Because often what happens is when we don't say something we want to say to someone else, we're putting up a wall or a screen between us. This concept of emotional intimacy into me see, we often don't let people see into us. And so when we let people see into us, we tend to come out more connected. And so what I see in my practice that helps give me a ton of excitement or faith in humanity, we have incredible resilience. We have great psychological immune systems. People come out closer to one another. They tend to create more fulfilling lives for themselves. They work through setbacks again and again and again. I watch people have breakthroughs in the way that they see the world. I learn. I watch people learn to love themselves and then report like, oh, here's what's different now, here's what's different now, here's what's different now. And I just think that's so, so, so cool and rewarding and incredibly humbling to be able to be a part of helping people find that for themselves. Big smile on my face because it comes back to what we talked about in the beginning of just admitting that I'm scared and I'm human and I'm figuring it out. And you seeing that across all your clients, being able to get to that space and then figure it out, get the reps in and work through it and be resilient and come out on the other side and then work through another thing again and again. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Especially with high performers who tend to have historically motivated themselves through fear rather than through love. Mm. I wouldn't get to where I am unless I was this hard on myself. I remind them they're smart enough to know what a counterfactual is. They have no idea whether or not they would get to where they were without being that hard on themselves because that they have never tried not being that hard on themselves. And when I watch people learn to be kinder to themselves, to talk to themselves the way that they would talk to their friends or their parents, if they were not triggered by their parents or their kids or whatever, their partners at their best, when people can learn to treat themselves that way, they tend to be way more effective way better at what they do. They tend to get better results, raise more money, be better leaders, have more followers, get better business results. Like when I watch people make that shift, it's incredibly empowering. Yeah. Be kind to yourself because we're often the harshest on ourselves and even like talk to yourself like you would your best friend who you would treat with such care and attention. I love that. Jeff, you have such exciting things happening today you're mm-hmm. recently engaged you are thrive you really genuinely love what you do which i'm so happy to see mm-hmm. and you're getting so much meaning from it tell me about what's next for you what you're looking forward to yeah well thank you for saying all of that um i am both a believer in what's next and what's now and yeah. so for me, like what's now is like, I live in Miami beach. I love my apartment. I love my community down here. Jocelyn and I recently got engaged. And Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. It's been awesome. Um, and super rewarding. And she has been such a positive influence on my life. There is no way that I would be where I am 
today without her and just her ability to love me so deeply and so well and be so patient with me and challenge the hell out of me and help me see things that I have not been able to see within myself. Um, so what's next is us continuing to celebrate our engagement and our love and planning a wedding as we go into that. But that's also right now. Right, like right now is it's like it's a beautiful Saturday here in Miami Beach. And like I live each day, not as if it were my last, because I think that that's too much pressure to put on it. But one of these questions that my meditation teacher once upon a time asked me, he said, if I were to reflect on is if I were to die today, would I die at peace? Mm. which is a different framing from how would I live if it were my last day on earth. And so I am very focused on being quite intentional with who I spend my time with, how I spend my time, what energizes me. I enjoy putting good food in my body. I'm excited to keep doing that. I've been traveling a ton recently, um, and I am excited to be a little bit more grounded here in Miami coming up uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's entering the Great, great time of year here. So I'm happy to do that. And then with my coaching, like I could do this for the rest of forever. I feel so grateful that I get to partner with people and learn from them. I basically every day get the opportunity to learn from people smarter than I am about the human condition and share what I learn about techniques with other people to help them and then see how that works and then be able to go share it with someone else to see just how I can help people more effectively and humans are endlessly complex and fascinating and the more i learn like you were talking about earlier the more i recognize how little i know and so for me like it's both what's now and what's next it's just like continuing to learn continuing to partner with folks continuing to take good care of myself spending time with people i love and care about my parents are coming next weekend which i'm excited to see them and i'm gonna go back to new york for thanksgiving um so yeah i think that's both what's now and what's next what a wonderful response thank you so much for bringing up the importance of now it, it is so important because so many times we focus so much on the destination not the journey i love what you said sure. about if I were to die today, would I die in peace? And making sure you're filling each day with what brings you peace and joy, uh, yeah. what's what's challenging, what's interesting to you, and not putting that off for later. So yeah. I'm so, so pleased to know that you are taking great care of yourself, that you and Jocelyn are taking care of each other, and that you're present in the now. Yeah. There's never been any other time that existed other than right now. It will always and forever be, be now. now. Often when folks are really scared in a conversation or that are spiraling about something, I'll say, what's happening right now? Like you and me, it's a woman on chair talking to man on chair. That's it. That's all that's happening. Now, oh, if I say this, what's going to happen? And what's going to happen in six months from now? Oh, no. A lot of stuff is going to change over the next six months. But right now, there's no threat. Yeah. Right now, we're safe. We're safe with each other. Yeah. So I help bring folks back to the present quite a bit. Um, and I could use some help getting myself back to the present. So that's why I rely on my professionals. <laughs> yeah. And we all, we all can use help and we're all works in progress. And totally. it's a beautiful thing to acknowledge that and see how, what ownership we have as well. Totally. Jeff, this totally. was lovely. I have got to get you back on because there's so much I wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to cover today. So we'll have you on again another time. And I love you dearly. And mm. I can't wait to get to see you again soon in person in Austin or in Miami.
I love you as well. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm totally up for a round two. I might say the exact same things or something completely different. Who knows what will come out of my mouth next time. Um, but I'm really grateful to be included on this. I love what you're doing. Um, I think it's really cool. Uh, and I'm excited to see you doing this. You look like you're thrilled doing this. And like this brings you so much life and you're quite good at it. So thank you so much for including me. I'm really glad this is your version of Truth, right? So grateful for you, Jeff. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.